This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 78, The Almshouse. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. First, let me just say I hope everyone is healthy, and your family and your friends are healthy, and you're surviving these crazy times that we're all living through right now. This week, we're going to the almshouse or the poorhouse. Why did Atlanta have one? Where was it located? And what is still around to see today? Teaser, it's much more than you think. To start, let's go all the way back to England, which is where the term alms and almshouse comes from. For some reason, saying that word always makes me think of the Disney Robin Hood movie um, from the 70s, where he dresses like the blind beggar and asks for alms for the poor. So random, but that was like my favorite childhood movie. In 1660, the first United States almshouse opens in Massachusetts, and then by the 1730s, both New York City and Philadelphia got their own. It's both fascinating and sad to see how the poor were written about in these times, but as we move into the 1800s and 1900s, you see people being separated as the meritorious poor or the honest poor versus the tramps, the deadbeats, and the paupers. For the Victorians, the pauper element stood in the way of progress and development in their cities. Today, most of the elderly in our society have social security or retirement or nursing homes, but imagine times before these existed. Where would you send an older, destitute person with no family? How would you help a young family with two kids who were down on their luck? These were questions being asked by all growing cities. And in Atlanta, these questions were being sorted out in the first decade of the city's existence. By 1857, the Fulton County Grand Jury writes that, quote, the subject of the poor in our county is one that demands consideration and action, end quote, and pushes to establish the county poorhouse. It was to be managed by a superintendent and constructed as cheaply as possible until be self-sufficient in its operations. Three years later, these plans were realized with the opening of the County Almshouse, a cluster of wooden structures that sat where the Westview Cemetery Gatehouse is today. Beginning with 34 inmates, and yes, the term was inmate, which is the first place you see criminalization of poverty, which we still do today, but that's another soapbox for another episode. Uh, These inmates worked in making cloth, harvesting corn, hay, among many other crops. One year later, all county citizens that are found begging are sent to the almshouse. Transient beggars are arrested as vagrants and sent back to their hometowns or cities. By 1864, the Civil War reached Atlanta, and more specifically, the battle reached the almshouse. Every structure was destroyed, with only chimneys left standing in the wake of the fighting. It took time and energy to get Atlanta restarted after the war, and the idea and the funds for rebuilding the almshouse were shelved until the late 1860s. The land along Gordon Street was sold, and a new several hundred acre plot was purchased about seven miles outside of the city limits along the new airline railroad. Today, at the corner of Peachtree and Piedmont Roads, sits Tower Place, a multi-story office building. Imagine that lot extended back over Georgia 400, the Marta Bridge, all the way to Ivy Street. All of that was the land for the county almshouse. At its peak, we see around 115 inmates, and records list how many were discharged, received, and or died. When we had 98 people there, 40 were sent from Atlanta, and 58 from the county. 
And so this is a great time to mention that financially this was a partnership between city and county. The superintendent received an annual salary of about $800, and then funds to run the facility were provided through county taxes. But the city of Atlanta paid for the paupers that it sent there. Around 1872, the almshouse reaches its peak capacity, and two years later, it's marred by mismanagement and poor conditions. We have the names of the acting superintendents, but almost no details of what exactly was going wrong. On these 200 acres were seven two-room crude structures for white people and three two-room structures for black people. There is a superintendent's house on the property, along with 20 acres being cultivated for crops, an orchard, and a small garden. The Atlanta City Council spent just over $3,000 for the almhouse that year, which was three-fifths of its treasury, along with almost $7,000 for paupers and relief aid. And this is where things start to kind of hit the fan, if you know what I mean. There's a big push to understand the cost of the almshouse and understand why it cannot be self-sustaining, i.e. producing enough crops and goods to sell and pay its bills. So a five-member committee is formed in 1875, and they're tasked with visiting and reporting on its conditions, inmates, and whether to provide more funds for expansion. Their final report tells us that 61 paupers live there, with 34 supported by the city and 27 by the county. Nearly all of them are old and infirm, so there's no able-bodied inmate to work the land, and there's just no way to make the poorhouse a self-sustaining venture. The structures are not insulated, which means they're really uncomfortable in both the winter and the Georgia summer. And the city then comes to the realization that they're double paying. So Atlanta is paying county taxes, but then by providing even more money from the treasury, they're essentially double paying for each of these inmates. Um, A written drama battle ensues in the papers between the city and the Fulton County judge Daniel Pittman, who claims that it is not his duty to care for Atlanta's poor. The back and forth goes on and on into the following year, um, and then finally the city just pulls all funds from the almshouse after like a major budget cleanup. And the county and the judge are like, listen, we weren't exactly planning for these costs, so we are going to appeal what you've decided and see what happens. By 1877, Atlanta wins the fight and is no longer responsible, and the county takes full control. In the 1880s, the state of Georgia established the first female-only convict labor camps. And I've said this before, if you have not listened to the episode about Chattahoochee Brick, go do that. It covers the convict leasing system, and it focuses on the brick company that was its largest user. Male and female convicts were originally sent together to do the same work, so there were some women at Chattahoochee Brick. But there was a certain horror of seeing women laboring in public construction projects that Victorians just couldn't really deal with. So seeing female convicts, you know, in the road or paving roads was just unacceptable. So female convict camps are created and usually located far away from the city center where less people would see them. The Fulton County Women's Camp was located in the rear of the almshouse property. In 1881, Dr. R.L. Hope was appointed to the almshouse superintendent position by Judge Calhoun, who succeeded Judge Pittman. Hope had moved to Atlanta as a little boy just before the Civil War reached the city. His family would stay through the destruction, and afterward he was left an orphan. As an adult, he attended Georgia Eclectic Medical College, and then afterward married Della Plaster of the Plaster family, who owned a 1,300-acre plantation stretching from about Rock Springs Church area 
um, which is still standing today, up towards Buckhead. He was paid $400 a year, significantly lower than previous superintendents. But the thing is that Dr. Hope was only 22 and he was fresh out of medical school. So the agreement was that if he could manage the poorhouse, take it out of this mismanagement and poor conditions that it had, his salary would be raised the next year. Fulton County also then created a board of commissioners specifically to deal with all of the almshouse matters. And the most important matter at hand was the dilapidated state of the structures themselves. The committee wonders if maybe it's just time to tear the whole thing down. In 1883, $2,000 was paid for a lot near Oglethorpe Park, which was where the 1881 exposition was held on the west side of the city. 50 acres are purchased along Mason and Turner's Ferry Road, part of it in a nice grove, and then part along Proctor's Creek. The plans called for a one-story building with dining rooms and then wings split by gender and then by race. Estimated completion would be in one year, and this was going to be called the County Poorhouse. The thing is, it never happened. The land was instead used for a convict camp, but not for paupers. Critics believe the location was too close to the city, and we couldn't have the poor in plain sight. Instead, the commissioners of roads and revenue visit the current almshouse, along with an architect, and they make plans to improve and build new on this 336-acre site that the county already owned. In August of 1884, Dr. Hope supervised the new almshouse being built on the property. Replacing the poorly insulated wooden shacks would be a beautiful brick building. And building the structure are 18 female convicts, along with five men and two brick molding machines. I described the brick making method in the same Chattahoochee Brick episode, but it was grueling, terrible work. And these convicts baked 400,000 bricks into the winter months to get this completed. Ironically, the new brick almshouse was for white paupers only and the black residents were then moved into the former white-only building. The convicts themselves, they were living in tents and temporary shelters on the property. Complaints against Dr. Hope come just as the new house is completed. A black man named Hamp Moses, who lived near the poorhouse and often visited, comes into Atlanta and reports the bad state of affairs. He says a woman resident, one of his friends, her name is Maria Wilson, was burned to death because she fell in an open fire. Another person that he knew there had frostbite on their toes, and in general, the 25 black paupers did not have enough to eat or not work well cared for, and yet were afraid to complain. Another man, C.S. Bailey, was living in a rented room in Atlanta with his wife and children and explains that he, quote, would rather starve on the streets of Atlanta then go to the poorhouse under the conditions of Dr. Hope, end quote. The cooking there was not fit for a dog, and those living only received two meals a day. He witnessed Hope tying up a mentally ill white woman and beating her after she got in a fight with another inmate, and that he buried a white man without even washing his hands. So a reporter is sent out to the almshouse from the city to investigate the claims, and he goes out and, I mean, This is cue the racist language, but he sees, quote, Negroes lazily sunning themselves outside the cabins, end quote. And immediately it's telling the readers everything's fine, everyone's happy. He claims that he goes around to residents, asks them about his accommodations, and then is joined by Dr. Hope as he continues on his survey. Um, Hope explains that there are extra bricks on the property waiting and that new Negro housing is being planned for the spring. Satisfied, the reporter returns to the city and describes the charges as unfounded. 
It's confusing to understand, let alone explain, how each subset of people living in poverty are cared for. There are orphanages for kids, there are homes for veterans, there are places specifically for women, and then the more that I continue to find mentioned as I research, it's it's almost overwhelming. But at this time, for anyone determined to be insane, they were all sent to the state asylum in Milledgeville. But by 1887, that was no longer working, as the asylum was at capacity, and the state legislator passed a law saying that each county must provide their own asylum facilities. They were then going to remove the tamest inmates from Milledgeville and send them to their respective homes. Four people from Fulton County are then transferred to the Peachtree Road Almshouse and housed in a special building. So in Atlanta, to determine who went to which place, I found out that there was a Dr. Hurt that would decide on site at the police station, so right immediately after your arrest, he would decide whether somebody would be sent to the almshouse or the asylum. Life continues on into the 1890s, where by mid-decade, the female convicts are bringing in hundreds of bushels of corn, potatoes, peas, onions, and raising chicken, hogs, and cows, among other farm animals. There is a high society fascination with poor houses kind of happening across America, and you see write-ups in the paper that read like short story fiction. In Atlanta, the county poorhouse is written about in a detailed piece that starts with a trip out along the future Piedmont Road, described as, quote, a long and devious route, curving about the hills and forming quite an irregular and winding approach, end quote. Dr. Hope has been living here with his family in the Brick Almshouse for 14 years now. The convict camp is about one mile away on the property, and the asylum is just a quarter mile away. Yearly expenses for the almshouse are about $6,500, with 155 inmates and $850 spent on the asylum. There are 21 female convicts on the farm, five of whom are white. And there are locally famous residents here that Atlantans love reading about. Um, One of them is 60-year-old ex-attorney Robert Eli. He was a legal advisor to a former governor until his mental health declined, and he was sent to Milledgeville. The story is that he escaped the hospital there, and had been living in Fulton County Asylum ever since. Another man nicknamed Old Limerick was known to appear in and out of the Atlanta Police Court and Stockade. And then there was S.F. Billings, a one-legged former Confederate soldier that went by the name of Old Waters. Waters grew his own tobacco and had a little cigar manufactory in his room. By the turn of the century, the majority of those living in the poorhouse are elderly or infirm and therefore unable to work. But no fear, we have 25 black women at the convict camp, the youngest being 16 years old. All black prisoners were relegated to their own housing structures, but when white women convicts did come to the camp, they were allowed to sleep in the almshouse with the paupers. And when I say if they came to the camp, there was definitely a big if. So white women arrested in Atlanta were mainly sent to jail, while black women were immediately sent to the prison farm for hard labor. In 1905, Atlanta passes a law against soliciting alms, or what we would call today panhandling. And Mayor Woodward tells a police chief to, quote, clear the streets of misshapen, deformed, or maimed, end quote, and if they won't leave the city, to send them to the poorhouse. As it continues to fill up, the county decides to subdivide its several hundred acres and sell a select few to make money and move the facility. $70,000 is raised by selling 23 lots, which would front the newly paved Plasters Bridge Road. And today, that's Piedmont Road. Land is purchased just two miles away, and the convicts begin grading that lot and building the new almshouse. 
So these 1,000 acres covered what today is mostly Chastain Park, the amphitheater, the horse park, the golf course. The superintendent in these times was Mr. O. Fanning, and he oversaw the construction of two buildings that still stand today. 215 West Wayuka is part of the Galloway School, but in 1912, this neoclassical revival, Bruce and Morgan Design Building, was home to 145 white people living in poverty. During the Great Depression, that number would rise to 200. Just down the street at 135 West Wayuka, the now Chastain Arts Center was built in the same year, but to house black paupers. In the rear of that building, no longer existing, would have been the caretaker's house and the housing for female convicts. The convicts were responsible for farming all of the land that is today covered by baseball fields and golf courses. Some of them worked in the kitchen, and some took care of patients. Nothing like free labor, right? Even more incredible is that the land farmed at the turn of the century was being farmed a century before that by the Muscogee Indians. So next time you're running laps around Chastain or playing a few rounds of golf or taking your kids to a baseball game, you have a lot to think about when you look at the ground beneath you. In 1928, Henry Clay Clark became superintendent of the Fulton County Almshouse, and he moved in with his wife, Jessie, and their five children. Just four years later, he died suddenly, and Jessie's pregnant with their sixth child. So she had been operating as a matron of the home, um, which was common when people moved in with their wives, and so she applied for her late husband's job. This was super duper rare. She's a woman, but even more so in the midst of the Great Depression, it was very rare for women to take work away um, that was traditionally a man's role or a job that was available for a man. She tells the board that she will work for free for the first year and afterward they can gauge her performance and decide if they want her to stay. And she turns out to get the job. Renamed the Haven Home, Jessie became the first female department head in Fulton County history. And because of her role in overseeing inmates, some consider her the first female prison warden. She was also considered to be pretty progressive around convict reform. So she removed the stripes from their uniforms. She allowed family and children to visit the women every Sunday when they would eat together in the dining hall. And she also helped each woman find work after being released. If you know your history, the Depression and subsequent New Deal programs brought us Social Security in 1935. So with a safety net of sorts, places like poorhouses and almshouses are less essential and less popular. In the 1960s, President Johnson enacts the Great Society programs, and that pretty much signals the end for the Fulton County Almshouse. It closed in 1963 and for a few years served as an annex for an elementary school. In 1969, the Galloway School moved in and it's still there today. North Fulton Park, as, as it was originally called, was dedicated to the memory of Fulton County Commissioner Troy Chastain in 1946. So around 2014, graves were discovered near the fifth green of the golf course. See, back when the almshouse was closed, a county land agent removed 311 bodies that had been buried in the almshouse cemetery and they must have missed some because 86 unmarked graves were located with mapping technology. And even more crazy is that the almshouse records only had four death certificates on file. Three were for unnamed African Americans whose bodies had been donated to science and not even buried on site, and one for a white man who died in 1922. So we will never know the names of these people and who they were, but at least by sharing this history, 
we can keep these stories alive. So there you have it, the story of the Fulton County Almshouse. This research has opened Pandora's box for me as I discovered mentions of um, prison farms and industrial farms and pauper relief and things I had never heard about, but I really want to learn more. So I hope to bring more of those stories soon. Thank you for listening. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, share it with a friend, leave a review. Um, And if you're looking for ways to support the podcast, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash archive Atlanta. I try my very best to release at least two bonus episodes each month, Um, although it's been a little crazy recently, but I am working on three new mini releases next week. Hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.